0: And the first thing is preventing color revolutions. And I think this is really the sort of thing that she is most focused on when it comes to looking at Putin.
1: Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Today's episode is brought to you by the University of Denver's Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. Corbel graduates make the world a better place, working toward global solutions in climate change, international security, economics, development, and diplomacy. 95% of Corbel students get jobs after graduation, and Corbel alumni are power players around the world. Learn more about the seven different degree programs offered at the University of Denver Joseph Corbel School of International Studies by visiting Corbel.du.edu. Xi Jinping spent three days in Russia in a highly touted visit that included hours of direct talks with Vladimir Putin. The visit comes amid Putin's growing international isolation and heightening tensions between China and the United States. So what did she hope to accomplish with this major diplomatic summit? Joining me to answer that question and more is Jordan Schneider, founder of the podcast and newsletter China Talk. We kick off discussing the evolution of Chinese-Russian relations since the invasion of Ukraine, and then discuss some of the key takeaways from the Xi Jinping-Vladimir Putin summit. And a quick note before we start, For those of you who are regular listeners to the show, first, thank you. We've built a really amazing community around this show over the years. Second, do take a moment to leave a review of the show on Apple Podcasts. Leaving a review on Apple Podcasts helps raise the profile of the show for those who are searching for international affairs-related podcasts like Global Dispatches. Now, here is my conversation with Jordan Schneider, of the podcast and newsletter, China Talk. Before we start, I do want to plug China Talk. Everyone should subscribe. I'm a subscriber. I just listened to your excellent interview with historian Stephen Kotkin, so everyone Do take a moment to subscribe to Jordan's excellent podcast and newsletter.
0: Thanks so much, Mark. Yeah, we do bi-weekly shows about China, the U.S., and technology. I think your audience will get a real kick out of it. Definitely.
1: So before we discuss Xi's trip to Moscow, can I have you set the context from the Chinese perspective of how Beijing's approach to Russia has evolved since Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year?
0: So let's start by talking a little bit about Xi foreign policy and where Putin and the Russian Federation fit into that. So China does not have a ton of allies in the world. I mean, the countries that it can come close to, Russia aside, are you know, the likes of a Pakistan or a North Korea, not necessarily the most impressive bedfellows when you sitting in Beijing are worried about the sort of like world lining up against you for Cold War 2.0 or something. But Putin is really the only player that I think she sort of understands, feels like is on their side and, you know, has real resources to bring to the table from an economic, military and diplomatic perspective. So she has been over the past decade in power pretty focused on increasing and deepening ties with his neighbor to the north. But the war kicking off, you know, I think was a real curveball for Chinese leadership. The war famously started right after the Winter Olympics in Beijing concluded and only days following the Putin-Xi announcement of a quote unquote no limits partnership. Now, it's unclear whether or not she was told that, in fact, a war was going to start with the you know level of violence and severity that Putin ended up deciding to conduct the operation with. And there are plenty of indications that the Chinese state more broadly was definitely caught off guard by what ended up happening in Ukraine in February.
1: So that, I think, is a very helpful context for understanding Xi's views of Putin's prior to the invasion. Over the last 12 months or so, has China's approach to Russia changed in any meaningful way?
0: So I think there were sort of three potential paths that she could have taken. The first is to, you know, side with the G7 and the rest of the world and condemn the invasion and, you know, potentially even put sanctions on, on Russia and express its sort of deep displeasure at the fact that Russia is violating many of this sort of core components of Chinese foreign policy, like not interfering in other countries' affairs and, you know, starting in territorial aggrandizement and whatnot. That was the path not taken. There was also, I think, a path which folks were worried about initially, where China would sort of go full pro-Putin and, you know, openly supply arms and aggressive sort of military as well as diplomatic and economic support. I don't think we're all the way there yet. But the sort of middle ground which the Chinese government took in the first month seems to be creeping closer and closer to a more aggressive Putin stance, which the rest of the world is really concerned about, particularly as it impacts the potential balance on the battlefield. As, of course, Ukraine is being supplied by the entirety of the NATO's war arsenal, while Russia can only really rely on its own military industrial base. But if she ends up deciding that, in fact, you know, it's not in China's interest to have Putin lose or have a sort of battlefield developments go in such a way that Putin's regime is threatened domestically. Governments around the world are more and more concerned that she could decide to start arming Putin and the Russian regime more aggressively.
1: Yeah. So there is this kind of school of thought suggesting that a Russian defeat may trigger the collapse of Putin's regime destabilize Russia and maybe potentially usher in like a Western-leaning government, which would be problematic to the Chinese Communist Party and Xi. Was there anything in the trip that happened in the trip, however, that suggested to you that China may be coming closer to providing
0: arms or more overt diplomatic or military support to Russia? So I think it's important to take a step back and put the Xi-Putin meeting in the context of what has been reported in the Western media of Xi reportedly considering to dramatically increase the military materiel support to Putin. And at the very beginning of the war, there was a lot of noise about the Biden administration making very clear to China that, in fact, it would catch them if they ended up sending arms to the north. and the consequences for the Chinese economy could potentially be really severe. Now, China has taken that, internalized it, and a year later is apparently reconsidering whether or not it makes sense to kind of deal with whatever blowback would come to the PRC from the Europeans and Americans because it is so concerned about what you just mentioned, Mark, of things going so poorly for Putin and Ukraine that the regime gets destabilized. So, with that in the background, you know, what you saw over the past few days was like pretty much as dramatic a declaration of continued support, approval and partnership as you could expect from this sort of a meeting. I mean, reading through the readout in Chinese, it's basically they didn't say no limits partnership, but, you know, there wasn't any kind of language rollback. I mean, there was still deep expressions of support and very little to give hope for some in the West who were perhaps fantasizing that she would go to Putin and say, look, you guys, you have to end this war. It's not good for anyone. We're going to potentially pull the plug. We're going to use the leverage that we have from an economic and military perspective of what China has been able to do to support Putin and put that on the table as something that Putin could lose unless he ended up proposing something to the Ukrainians, which would really lead to a sustainable peace.
1: So I'm glad you mentioned the Chinese readout of these meetings and of this trip, because I wanted to ask you, like, what is unique to you reading the Chinese language readout of this trip? What are
0: your key takeaways from that readout? So there's this really interesting little detail, which I think is really illustrative of, in fact, what she is looking for when it comes to international partnerships. You know, the US is always like, man, we can work together on climate change and all these sort of like transnational issues that are sort of like global public good problems. The thing that ended up making it into this document were the two sides agreeing to negotiate and hold an annual meeting of ministers of public security and interior affairs on strengthening law and cooperation involved. And the first thing is, preventing color revolutions. And I think this is really the sort of thing that she is most focused on when it comes to looking at Putin. Look, here is another autocrat who has been able to last a long time and successfully deal with challenges to liberalize its political system. And that's the bottom line that she is ultimately looking at when he thinks about the sort of global system, whether or not What's going to be happening in the world is going to be conducive to the CCP staying in power or make it more difficult for the CCP to stay in power. And at the end of the day, having a strong, stable Russia with Putin or like a Putin like person who feels the same way about China that Putin does in power, Chinese leadership has concluded is really important for the Chinese regime sticking around in roughly the same dimensions that it does currently.
1: So that obviously suggests that, you know, as you just said, that like, China is very much interested in Putin staying in power, but does like cooperating on preventing color revolutions also suggest that the two might actually cooperate to prevent color revolutions in places like Central Asia or the Stands?
0: I would assume so, yeah. I mean, I think this is the sort of thing, like there's a lot of debate around whether Biden's framing of like autocracies versus democracies makes a lot of sense. But I really think there is some germ in here about both the Chinese and Russian systems thinking that it is better for them if the liberal democratic world isn't going so hot so that their respective populations can kind of look at what's happening in the rest of the world and not be like, oh, man, I want more of that, but instead think, man, like democracy just like brings problems and is too chaotic. And I think, you know, that was a, a lot of folks who know more about Putin and Ukraine than me argued that this was, in fact, a very deep rationale for why Putin was so uncomfortable with letting Ukraine live and let live in the first place, because if there was a thriving, functional, democratic, Europeanizing Ukraine right on its border, which is, you know, made up of the same sort of cultural and ethnic heritage as what occupies most of Russia, then in fact, you know, the Russian people could potentially look back and reflect and think, huh, like they can do this. Why can't we? And that's the sort of thing that I think she and Putin would rather not see the world democracies thrive because it does potentially put the decisions that they've made about how to rule their own countries in a more negative light.
1: So if one key outcome or purpose of this trip, as you said, was she very publicly demonstrating a kind of confidence in Putin and his support for Putin individually, how much were kind of hard commercial interests a key driving purpose behind this meeting? Russia has replaced Saudi Arabia as China's top supplier of oil for at least the first couple months of this year. Like, how much of this trip is China just exploiting a weaker Russia in order to secure better deals on oil and gas and and energy cooperation?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think these sorts of things are nice to haves, right? But what Xi is risking with this is potentially putting an enormous swath of the economic trade that has been, you know, the real driver of Chinese growth for the past 30 years with the U.S. and with the EU, because the closer that she gets to going all in and with military support for Putin, the closer he is to hardening views even more dramatically than they are now in the U.S. and in Western capitals around the world, that Xi's China is not the sort of country that the rest of the world is comfortable being tied to. And I think the sort of longer term economic growth consequences of that decision, in my view, are far more consequential than like, you know, saving an extra few dollars here and there on your oil bill every year.
1: So I know... You follow Chinese think tanks and Chinese thought leaders and the Chinese kind of policy community in particular. How are they interpreting or explaining or discussing this trip?
0: So, you know, most of the sort of academics and and folks associated with think tanks in China broadly say that what the Chinese government is doing is the right decision. And Putin's a really important partner and we need to support him and this, that, and the other thing. But, you know, there are a number of prominent thinkers who have been arguing the opposite and sort of taking some of the points that I've made over the past 15 minutes and saying, look, you know, we are risking a lot By getting in bed with this guy, you know, he may not necessarily be around for a while. And the consequences to China's global standing in the world and its future relationship with the rest of the world are potentially enormous. And the sort of payoffs you get from supporting Russia are like not that great. I mean, it is a sort of shrinking economy that like has oil, but like that's basically it. And if you are changing the calculus around the world when it comes to trade, investment, technology exports, the sorts of things that China is going to need a lot more to compete economically in the 21st century than like cheap oil and like lumber or what have you, it may not necessarily be the right decision. So, interestingly, I did come across a WeChat blogger who is like very like kind of Maoist and like hard right and Chinese, who is actually making the argument that in fact, being pro Ukraine better lines up with China's core interests than supporting Putin. I just want to read a little quote. Since the beginning of the US China trade war, the US along with its allies has applied extreme pressure on China. Because you know, of the idea of that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Many netizens have expressed genuine sympathy towards Russia and shared solidarity with their grievance. But there is a difference between understanding global power struggles and LARPing. While some Russia's citizens are protesting war in the streets, there are some in our country who act more imperialistic than czarist Russia. Let's pull out the microscope and review some Russian moves that look a little familiar. Russia demands that Ukraine act as a buffer zone between itself and NATO. We remember the pain of outer Mongolian independence, which is the idea that Mongolia should have remained a part of China. It is like a fringe thing that like hard right Chinese nationalists think. This guy writes that the U.S., in using its strengths to bully the weak, is a jackal. Russia, in its no-guards militarization, is a leopard. As the international transforms, one hopes we can proudly say in hindsight that we stood on the side of justice. To whom does justice belong? In October 2022, 143 countries denounced Russia's illegal conquest at the U.N. Only five countries supported Russia. So this is a fringe thing, but I do think that It is just a deeply uncomfortable thing to be supporting Putin's Russia in March of 2023. And it's very straightforward to make the argument that is in favor of the country who got invaded and is having war crimes being committed upon them. And it's much more difficult to sort of tie yourself in these like geostrategic knots and say, no, in fact, like it'll turn out great for us in the end. And that's why I think that you kind of have to come back to these sorts of like regime type and even like personal Xi Putin style arguments to really understand what Beijing really sees in it for them for supporting Putin in something that the entire world has lined up against.
1: And during the three days of Xi's trip to Russia, Were there any specific moments or statements that stuck out to you in terms of she very deliberately trying to signal or send a message to the Biden administration specifically or the West in general?
0: I mean, I think more than any line, the idea of having an official state visit in these like shiny rooms where they're sitting there having handshakes and talking about how they're big friends and stuff like that says all you need to say, which is that she thinks that this guy and his relationship with China is extraordinarily important. And the West shouldn't expect China to play the role that many are hoping it does of being perhaps the one player on the international stage that could talk Putin off the ledge and sort of bring him back to his senses to put a solution on the table that would actually end this war. And, you know, that was perhaps the most depressing thing about watching the events of the past few days play out, because there really is very little other hope for, you know, something else to develop that could potentially bring this war to a quicker end, aside from, you know, something that is really, would be really unfortunate, like the EU or the US deciding that it, you know, didn't think it was in its interests to continue supporting Ukraine anymore. So uh, I think one of the kind of low probability outcomes that folks were hoping for peace to come, this, this trip took off the table for me.
1: So lastly, in the coming weeks or months, Is there anything that you'll be looking towards that will suggest to you whether or not China in any way is like fundamentally changing its approach to Russia?
0: So I think if there's going to be a direction of change, unfortunately, it's probably in the direction of more cooperation. So, you know there there've been a handful of american entity listings on like a firm that was selling satellite data to the wagner group and politico recently found a handful of like body armor and and sniper rifles go to the prc but it doesn't seem like the sort of wholesale support that would have a real material sort of military implication on the battlefield of like bringing tons of artillery shells or sort of heavy weapons or something like that hasn't happened yet but if that does will be in a very new and dangerous world because the US and EU will not take that lying down. And I think the sort of whatever punishment that the Western capitals decide to inflict on China for that sort of decision, I think will be really severe and take the timeline of China's relationship to the rest of the world closer and closer to something that doesn't necessarily approximate Russia, but puts us in a place where sort of more escalation and and potentially conflict has a higher likelihood, which is a really scary world to be in. Well, Jordan, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure, Mark.
1: Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on GlobalDispatchesPodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to Patreon.com slash Global Dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts.